Welcome to conference coverage highlights presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160. Conference coverage highlights features the latest clinical information and research findings from the 2009 American Society of Clinical Oncology's Genitourinary Cancer Symposium. The conference took place February 26th through the 28th in Orlando, Florida, and was co-sponsored by the American Society for Therapeutic Radiology and Oncology and the Society of Urologic Oncology. Dutch researchers designed a personalized risk calculator that can predict a man's likelihood of developing prostate cancer. The calculator combines prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, test results with additional prostate cancer risk factors like previous prostate biopsy results, family history of prostate cancer, and prostate size. The investigators examined the value of PSA results combined with digital rectal exam findings, prostate volume, previous negative prostate biopsy results, family history of prostate cancer, and age at diagnosis. They measured these factors in more than 5,000 men in the Netherlands at the start of the study and again four years later. For any given PSA level, family history of prostate cancer elevated a man's future cancer risk, but a previous negative biopsy and increased prostate volume lowered risk. For example, a man with a PSA of 1.3 nanograms per milliliter with no previous negative biopsy, a positive family history, and a small prostate has a 5% chance of developing prostate cancer within four years. A man with a previous negative biopsy, no family history, and a large prostate could have a PSA of up to 4 nanograms per milliliter before reaching a similar risk. The authors hope their methods will be incorporated into standard prostate cancer screening procedures. Most doctors only measure a man's PSA levels, which is unquestionably the strongest predictor of prostate cancer risk, but a variety of factors like benign prostate enlargement can affect PSA levels. By combining other factors with PSA, a more accurate and longer-term view of a man's risk for prostate cancer can be calculated. This can be helpful for identifying men for more frequent screening. Other researchers described a urine test that can detect the presence of prostate cancer. It also may help predict the aggressiveness of a particular case. The urine test detects the fusion of two genes, TMPRSS2 and ERG. This fusion is found in about half of prostate cancers and has been associated with more aggressive disease. The test is known as the T2 ERG urine test, developed by Genprobe Incorporated. Researchers say that the T2 ERG urine test shows high specificity for detecting prostate cancer at biopsy. Also, levels of the gene fusion in the urine correlate with prognosis indicators, for example, tumor volume and stage. These conclusions came after investigators prospectively analyzed TMPRSS2 ERG gene fusion levels in urine samples from more than 500 men scheduled for prostate biopsy. The biopsies showed that less than half had prostate cancer. The new urine test predicted the presence of cancer at biopsy with a specificity of 85%, compared with a specificity of 27% for PSA testing. TMPRSS2 ERG gene fusions were detected in 42% of the men with prostate cancer. The T2 ERG urine test correlated with criteria currently used to identify aggressive cancer at the time of biopsy, that is the Gleason score, percent of biopsy cores that tested positive for cancer, and the amount of cancer found in the biopsy tissue. These preliminary data indicate the test could be used with other clinical information to help distinguish which men should receive aggressive treatment and which should simply be monitored. The new urine test is not yet commercially available. A prototype test has been developed, and additional studies are underway to assess its clinical utility.
A blood-based diagnostic test could predict survival in men with castration-resistant prostate cancer. The test measures the serum level of RNA from six genes. The genes are involved in various aspects of the immune response. Investigators at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Source MDX enrolled 62 patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer and followed them for about two years. The CRPC precision profile test was 96% accurate in predicting low-risk patients who were alive at the end of the study and 93% accurate in predicting high-risk patients who died before the end of the study. These results indicate the test may be a powerful tool for stratifying castration-resistant prostate cancer patients in clinical trials. The Prostate Cancer Clinical Trials Consortium will begin a prospective multi-site clinical trial to validate the test for this purpose. The researchers noted that survival for castration-resistant prostate cancer ranges greatly from several months to several years. Clinicians don't currently have the tools for easily identifying patients with the most aggressive form of the disease. Having a simple blood test that can achieve this could help investigators design more robust studies with more relevant survival endpoints. The results also point to important differences in the immune responses of patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer. Patients at high risk of dying had decreased levels of gene transcripts that are involved in cell-mediated and antibody-mediated immune responses. Low-risk patients' immune systems must have a better ability to deal with malignant tumors when faced with aggressive forms of prostate cancer. Turning to treatment options for prostate cancer, a shorter course of radiation treatment using higher doses may be as effective as standard radiation. Interim data from a Phase three trial indicate that a shorter course of radiation therapy of 2.7 grade per treatment is as effective as standard radiation therapy of 2.0 grade per treatment. Both regimens had a similar effect in reducing the risk of recurrence. Patients who undergo radiation therapy for prostate cancer traditionally make five visits a week for up to eight weeks. The regimen can leave them feeling fatigued and interfere with their quality of life. Hypofractionation is a protocol that reduces the number of visits patients have to make and slightly reduces the overall radiation dose, though patients receive more radiation at each visit. Investigators compared hypofractionation with standard radiation treatment by observing the percentage of men whose PSA levels rose after treatment. They studied about 300 patients, half received standard radiation for 38 treatments over seven and a half weeks, the other half received higher doses for 26 treatments over five weeks. After an average follow-up of more than three years, there was no significant differences in rising PSA levels or adverse effects between the two groups. 21% of the men in the standard group and 17% of the men in the hypofractionated group saw their PSA levels rise. Adverse effects were not severe. The most common were rectal bleeding and increased frequency and urgency to urinate. The researchers say their findings indicate that hypofractionation could potentially replace standard radiation therapy. This might improve patients' quality of life and allow them to spend less time in treatment. However, the study isn't complete. Definitive results will be available after a final analysis that's planned for 2011. Men with prostate cancer may also benefit from taking statins. One study found that this class of drugs can reduce the risk of dying from prostate cancer by at least 50%. Researchers at the UMDNJ School of Public Health in Piscataway, New Jersey, came to this conclusion after identifying all New Jersey men who died from prostate cancer between 1989 and 2001. They matched each man by age and race to a population-based control. An unadjusted analysis of the data revealed taking statins reduced a man's odds of dying from prostate cancer by half. 
When the investigators adjusted the data for exposure to any hypertensive medication, they found an even lower risk associated with statin exposure. After adjusting for these factors, a man had a 60% reduced risk of dying from prostate cancer if he used a statin. Researchers found no additional change in risk when they adjusted the data further for comorbid conditions, obesity, and education. The authors concluded their study adds to the body of evidence that links statin use with decreased risk for death from prostate cancer. Now for kidney cancer research highlighted at the conference. A study found that patients with renal cell cancer risk developing high-grade hypertension when they take the monoclonal antibody bevacizumab. Researchers came to this conclusion after performing a meta-analysis of relevant studies from PubMed and Web Science databases from 1966 to July 2008, and from abstracts presented at cancer conferences over the past eight years. The monoclonal antibody bevacizumab targets vascular endothelial growth factor. Eligible studies included prospective, randomized control trials where standard anti-cancer therapy was administered with and without bevacizumab. The investigators' analysis included 20 randomized controlled trials and more than 13,000 patients with solid tumors. The incidence of all-grade hypertension in patients receiving bevacizumab was approximately 24%. The incidence of high-grade hypertension in these patients was about 8%. Patients who took bevacizumab had five times the risk of developing high-grade hypertension compared with controls. When the researchers looked at relative risk within each tumor type, they found that the risk of getting high-grade hypertension was even higher in patients with renal cell cancer. Those patients were about twice as likely to develop high-grade hypertension as patients with other types of cancer. In other kidney cancer news, a large cohort study found that partial nephrectomy is better than radical nephrectomy for most patients with clinical T1B renal tumors. Investigators at the Cleveland Clinic evaluated more than 1,000 patients with renal masses between 4 and 7 centimeters. Half of the patients underwent a partial nephrectomy, while the other half had a radical nephrectomy. Patients who had a radical nephrectomy were more likely to be older, have larger tumors, higher pathologic stage, and higher burden of comorbid diseases. Patients who had a partial nephrectomy were more likely to have a solitary kidney, presence of contralateral disease, and decreased levels of epidermal growth factor receptor. The researchers studied a subgroup of patients who had no imperative indication for partial nephrectomy. In these patients, those who underwent a partial nephrectomy had a 63% reduced risk of dying after an average follow-up of four years. The authors noted that better overall survival was associated with partial nephrectomy, even on multivariate analysis controlling for age, comorbidities, pathologic stage, and other known predictors of overall survival. That some kidney function is preserved during a partial nephrectomy may account for this improvement. Another study from the Cleveland Clinic found that active and aggressive treatment of T1 renal tumors in elderly patients does not increase overall survival. Investigators assessed overall survival in more than 500 patients aged 75 years or older who had clinical T1 renal tumors. Their tumors had been managed with either active surveillance, nephron-sparing surgery, or radical nephrectomy. With an average follow-up of three and a half years, 22% of patients died. The cancer progressed in just under 3% of patients. How the tumors were managed was not a significant predictor of overall survival but age and presence of comorbidity were significant predictors. Change in kidney function and pathologic tumor characteristics were not significant. However, 86% of the patients who underwent radical nephrectomy had kidney dysfunction. The researchers concluded that there's no evidence that physicians are lengthening survival in these patients by treating them actively. 
They noted that doctors may be doing patients a disservice by treating them aggressively. Radical nephrectomy is associated with significant declines in kidney function. This can lead to increased risk of cardiovascular death. At Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, researchers who study bladder cancer have found that PET scanning is more accurate than CT or MRI for determining whether a patient's cancer has metastasized. PET scans, CTs, and MRIs all provide data about the location of a tumor. PET scans go a step further. They also give information about the activity of cancer cells by measuring the cell's ability to metabolize glucose. Patients with bladder cancer had PET scans for staging, treatment, response, or evaluation of suspected metastasis. Data on 53 patients were available to determine whether the PET scan results differed from the results of CT or MRI. The investigators reported that using PET scans provided several advantages. PET scans found more evidence of metastatic cancer than CT or MRI in 40% of patients. PET scans found less evidence of metastatic disease than these techniques in only 10% of patients. Also, PET scans prevented the need for invasive biopsies in about 20% of patients. Clinicians said the scans also avoided the need for more tests in 70% of cases. Finally, PET scan results actually affected many patients' treatment. Doctors changed treatment plans in two-thirds of patients after performing PET scans. The investigators say their findings indicate that PET scans might be a cost-effective imaging tool in patients with suspected or existing metastatic bladder cancer. They say that PET scans should be part of the standard of care when there's a high suspicion of metastatic disease. The number of surgeries a surgeon regularly performs affects the outcome for patients who undergo radical cystectomy. Having a surgeon who performs at least five procedures a year improves a patient's survival. Researchers at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada, compared outcomes in three groups of patients, those whose surgeons performed four or fewer procedures a year, those whose surgeons performed between five and nine procedures a year, and those whose surgeons performed at least ten procedures a year. There were at least 150 patients in each category. The researchers found that patients whose surgeons performed at least five radical cystectomies a year had significantly increased overall survival and bladder cancer-specific survival compared with patients whose surgeons performed no more than four procedures a year. Patients whose surgeons performed between five and nine procedures a year had a 34% reduced risk of dying from any cause, and risk of dying was reduced by 22% for patients whose surgeons performed at least 10 procedures a year. The risk of dying from bladder cancer was reduced by about a third for patients in the two higher volume groups compared with patients in the low volume group. Thank you for listening to conference coverage highlights from the 2009 American Society of Clinical Oncology's Genitourinary Cancer Symposium held February 26th through the 28th in Orlando, Florida. Co-sponsored by the American Society for Therapeutic Radiology and Oncology and the Society of Urologic Oncology. Conference coverage highlights is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com.